Well, good morning. There we go. Good morning to you. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, we are continuing on in a series uh, of the Songs of Ascent, uh, this group of 15 psalms from the book of Psalms, uh, where the people of Israel would, would take these psalms uh, with them, singing together as they journeyed towards uh, Jerusalem, ascending up to the city, ascending up to the temple to worship the Lord. And this morning, we are in Psalm 131 that Christian just uh, read for us. It is one of the shortest psalms that we have in Scripture. Uh, and yet, even though it's, uh, it's short and small, it packs a big punch. It leaves a big impact. It's, uh, it's like the little gun that Will Smith was given in the Men in Black movies. It's, it's the noisy cricket of the songs of ascent. So, um, Psalm 131. Um, about a year ago, we were, uh, my wife and I, Joelle, we were looking into the possibility of speech therapy for, uh, for our youngest son, Oliver, and we didn't know anything about that world, and so we started to do the research and talk to friends and Google and look on YouTube, uh, and I saw a YouTube video that was entitled, How to Tell if Your Child is Developing Properly. And that is a question that every parent worries about uh, because we're always concerned whether our children are developing as they should, uh, physically and emotionally and mentally and relationally, socially, uh, and even spiritually. Um, I don't remember if that video had anything to do about speech issues, but what I do remember is one comment that they made. And they said, and I think this was a secular group of, of, uh, of people, but they said, uh, human beings are designed to grow, and if you're not growing, then something is wrong. And I thought about that as I walked through this psalm this week, because Psalm 131 is all about growth. It's about maturity, that we are people who are made in God's image, and especially those of us who follow after the Lord, we, we are designed, we're made to, to grow, to mature. And if we're not maturing, then something is wrong. So we're going to talk about maturity this morning. We're going to look at three things. First, the trajectory of maturity. Uh, second, the heart of maturity. And third, uh, the hope of maturity. The trajectory, the heart, and the hope. Uh, but before we dive in, uh, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning uh, by your Spirit to work in us and through us and for us uh, to bring us a, a greater realization of who we are uh, in you. Um, yes, a realization of the depth of our sin, uh, but an even greater uh, realization of the, the wonderful work of your mercy to us, uh, your love. Lord, we do have great sin. We have a greater Savior. Uh, would you uh, remind us of the work of Jesus for us, your fatherly care for us, as you uh, grow us, as you mature us? Lord, may we leave this place changed people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, and especially I think one of the best movies of the past 20 years, is the 2007 film There Will Be Blood. It starred Daniel Day-Lewis, a great actor. Uh, he played this character named Daniel Plainview. He was an oil tycoon. And I don't know how much you know about tycoons, uh, but tycoons are typically not nice people. right? Uh, they are not kind 
And in fact, this guy is the villain of the film, the protagonist and, and the villain. Uh, he is someone who admittedly hated people. He said, I have a competition inside of me that I don't want anybody else to have any sort of success whatsoever. Um, he had a lust for power and, and fame and money and independence, and oil was a way uh, to give him all those things. Uh, he cheated people out of their property uh, to get to their oil. If you didn't give him your land, he would buy up all the property around you, get all the oil off of those tracts of land, and then suck out the oil from underneath you. Uh, he is someone who had uh, an adopted son um, who he showed some love and care for, but it was always trumped uh, by the love for himself, by his self-centeredness and self-absorption. Uh, there was uh, even this other swindler in town, the charlatan preacher, that he hated so much uh, that he straight up murdered him with a bowling ball. That's how the movie ends. This guy was the epitome of pride. And pride is the exact character trait that the psalmist is talking about in verse 1. Look back with me. He says, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Another way to read this is, my heart is not prideful. My eyes don't look down on others. I don't concern myself with things that make me seem better than. If you read scripture and you see pride being talked about, it's always uh, in terms of evil, that this is a character trait of evil, and the Lord hates it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he talked about pride. He said that pride is the sin behind every sin, that it's actually what makes Satan, Satan. He said this, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. For pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. But notice again what the psalmist says. He says, I don't embody a character of pride. And that is a huge deal. Here's why that's a big deal. Who wrote the psalm? You don't have it for you in your bulletin, but if you actually look at your Bible, there's a little script before verse 1 that's actually part of the Hebrew of verse 1. It says, a song of ascents of David. This is top of the food chain David, King David, powerful David, wealthy David, famous David, a David who is handpicked, ordained by God to leave God's people, David. Right? He's a big deal. He has every reason to be prideful, and yet he says, this is not my heart. This is not me. How can that be? Because pride is our default setting as human beings. The human condition, the, the sinful nature of human beings is a state of pride. There's a, an author named uh, David Foster Wallace who uh, he gave a commencement speech in, I think, 2003 or 2004 at Kenyon College called This is Water. You may be familiar with it. And he was telling these graduating students that you're going to very soon encounter um, the world and realize that you were wrong about so many things. And he said, here's just one example of the total wrongness of something that I tend to be automatically sure of, that everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting. 
hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience that you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV, your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. This is the human condition in a sinful state that God even talks about in Scripture. Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if any seek after God, but they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In the time after David, in, in, uh, or excuse me, in the time of the judges, uh, before David, uh, the people did what was right in their own eyes. In a time after David, in, the, in a couple hundred years after David, in the time of Isaiah, it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're prideful people. We're prone to pride. So let me just ask you this. If you took an assessment of your life right now, this morning, where, where does pride show up? Because it does show up. Where does it show up? Where would your friends and family say that it shows up? How are you turning away from the Lord in your pride? Think about that. Because there are two types of people in this world that the Bible speaks of. Only two. There's the righteous who are humble and the wicked who are prideful. Um, recently, in the past few weeks, uh, I listened to a, a podcast by a, a, a woman who is a psychotherapist uh, and an author, and she deals only with narcissists. And uh, she said this, she says, unless there is some sort of radical renewal in a person, in a narcissist, usually through some sort of traumatic life event, then narcissists do not change. And you just have to to try to get used to them and, and deal with them. There are people that, that hold on to pride, are prone to do that. Look, a prideful person does not and cannot reach deep inside themselves and tap into some sort of element of goodness to live differently. They don't just decide one day to be like, you know what, I'm just going to start living for others. That just doesn't happen. What does the Lord say? No one is good, not even one. So if pride is our default setting as sinful people, how can David say, this is not me? It's because even though David knew that he fell short of what God had called him to as a human being, as one of his own, right? And we, and we know that too. We can read the story of David's life. Still, this is the reality is that the Lord had changed him. The Lord changed his heart, the direction of his heart. Think about who David calls out to at the beginning of verse 1. He says, O oh Lord, O oh Yahweh. This is the personal covenantal name of God that God's people refer to him as. His name means I am or I will be who I will be. His name, the Lord's name, signals that he does not and will not change ever that he is the God who is steadfast in his love and mercy that he shows to people like us, even though we are not faithful. 
the story of God's people throughout history, which is the same story of our lives every single day, is just what we confessed a little bit ago, that we are people that are prone to evil and slothful and good. We're prone to anger and envy and lust and gossip and greed and laziness and workaholism, perfectionism. It doesn't matter what it is. It's all pride. That's its root. And yet, here's also the story of God's people. This is the headline news of Scripture, is that the Lord promises and enacts. He brings about real change in us through a Redeemer that cannot be undone, no matter how hard we try. The Lord promises himself in Jeremiah 32. He says, I will make with them, that is my people, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the reverence, the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Here's the point. The trajectory of maturity is a movement from pride to humility because the Lord has changed the default setting of our heart from self-centered to God-centered to other-centered. That's the trajectory of maturity. What about the heart of maturity? Look again at verse 2. David says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul uh, within me. Uh, It's pretty countercultural language that David uses here. It's the kind of language that, that Jesus uses in Matthew 18 when he says, Unless you turn and become like children, that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about the posture of your heart. And David here says that the posture of my heart, my soul, has become humbled. It's become dependent like a weaned child. Now, how is that countercultural? Well, if you look at anything around us, especially in American culture, you'll see that what our culture values is what? Personal freedom, uh, don't tread on me, no guardrails, be your own boss, self-made, DIY, live your own truth type of independence. You hear it in popular music, uh, like Wide Open Spaces by the Dixie Chicks, right? Miss Independent, Kelly Clarkson, It's My Life by Bon Jovi, Queens, I Want to Break Free, Kanye, Can't Tell Me Nothing. We're not autonomous people, but we want to be autonomous. We, we think that we have autonomy. But in fact, what the Bible says is that we are designed for, we're made for, we're rooted in families and community and relationship. But our sin demands autonomy. The culture around us says that I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want with my body and to my body. But the church, and we as Christians, um, we can fall into the trap of believing that we live fairly autonomous lives too. Uh, we often think that we can say whatever we want. Uh, we, uh, we can mask rudeness and meanness to other people as just speaking the truth in love, right? We think that we can say whatever we want about other people. Uh, even if, you know, we think, well, they're just politicians or whomever, and they've got a tough skin. You know, I don't even know them. Well, you're, you're, you're talking about them, maybe behind their back, or you're, you're, uh, you're gossiping. Maybe you'll even feel the freedom to say something to someone's face. And this is especially true when it comes to being online and social media and Facebook. We think that we can say whatever we want without repercussions. It is a problem, people. It's a problem. 
We, we get wrapped up in name-calling and slander and, again, gossip and uh, aligning with and, and participating in uh, division and discord and conspiracy theories. That's not the way that God has called us to live. But we want to be autonomous. But think for imagine not the wean child but the weaning child. What's the weaning child? The weaning child is the child that you're trying to get off milk, right? You start to introduce some solid foods, um, start to to introduce some peas and carrots and avocado, uh, and the child is like, are you trying to kill me? What is this mess? Get out of here, right? The child wants a a transactional relationship. I'm going to fuss, I'm going to cry, I'm going to scream, and then you're going to give me food, you're going to give me milk. But what about the weaned child? The weaned child... It's matured to the point where it, it doesn't just want, you know, whatever you can give to me for my own good, but it wants closeness. It wants intimacy. It wants time with you. But and yet, whether you're a weaning child or a weaned child, you're still a child. And you're utterly dependent upon your parent for provision for everything, including being instructed in and, and having the demonstration of what life is supposed to look like. Children still need to grow, and if you're not growing, then something is wrong. A couple years before we, uh, we moved here to Memphis, we lived in Tucson, Arizona, for several years. I was a pastor out there at a couple churches, and uh, when we first moved, there was a, a lady that was in my shepherding group named Shyla. She was 95 years old, sweet lady, sort of the mother of the church. Uh, she had been a Bible school teacher. She uh, was a pastor of a Dutch, Re- or excuse me, the wife of a Dutch Reformed pastor. And I'm thinking, you've been a Christian for 90 years, probably longer than I'll ever be alive. How on earth am I going to minister to you? You need to be ministering to me, right? Uh, but, uh, but I still, I sat down with her and I said, okay, Shiloh, what has the Lord been teaching you recently? What's he been teaching you today? And she goes, oh, that's easy. She said, I have a lot of growing up to do. And I was just, you know, confused. Like, what do you mean by that? She goes, oh, she says, I, I need to mature. She goes, even this morning, I couldn't pray without sinning. Because I, I know that the Lord is close to me, that he's always with me. So why can't I stay present with him? I want to. Because the more time I spend with him, the more that he grows me and changes me. And the more he changes me, the more I look like Jesus. Even after 90 years as a follower of Jesus, this sweet woman knew that she hadn't arrived. And she depended on the Lord to bring her to complete maturity. Here's the point. The heart of maturity is not independence, but it's a counter-cultural, intimate dependence on the Lord. Lastly, what about the hope of maturity? Look at verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What does David mean by hope? What does the Bible mean by hope when, when, we, when we talk about hope? Well, again, I mentioned that we were in Tucson for a number of years, and one thing that Tucson has annually is something called a gym show. Actually, the gym show. Like 100,000 people from all over the world gather every single year for about a month uh, to buy, sell, and trade uh, uh, gemstones and precious stones and crystals. And a lot of people, um, you know, 
buy that stuff for, for art purposes. Uh, but most people are there because they think that gems and these crystals have certain healing properties. Uh, I, I looked on, online recently at an online crystal shop. Not that I was shopping. Um, but I, I looked on there and it said that you can buy the crystals that increase hope. They said, hope is the awareness of the existence of goodness and light in every human heart and every situation. These healing crystals for hope will help you access this level of awareness and keep it with you through trying circumstances, helping you find the resilience to carry on. Now, if you think that surely no one could believe that junk, um, no one that I know believes that junk, I guarantee you that people in your circles and in your neighborhoods believe that things like gems and crystals have certain healing properties to give them good vibes and good energy. 100% guaranteed. But if you're someone who's here and you maybe you believe that hope is the awareness of the existence of goodness and light in every human heart in every situation, that ain't hope. That ain't biblical hope. But here's what biblical hope is also not. It's also not simply wishing or willing that something would come to pass. And this is where we Christians typically live, if we're honest. We'll say things like, I'm, I'm just trusting in the Lord. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. And yet, behind the scenes, in our mind, we're like crossing our fingers and like, come on, no whammies. If I just pray hard enough, I just got to keep praying, pray, praying, almost like a mantra, willing something would happen and not truly resting in the Lord. That's not biblical hope. What is biblical hope? Biblical hope is more like Ted Lasso kind of hope. It's being absolutely certain that you will experience what is best for you in every single situation, in every station of life, no matter what, win or lose or tie. And it changes you. It shapes all of your life. It it shapes who you are and and how you act around people. It shapes um, who you choose as friends Uh, who you love and how you love them and how you use your time and your talents and your treasures, how you spend your money, how you steward it, how you steward the creation, how you take care of the world around you. The Hebrew word that David uses for hope here uh, is a very pregnant word, and it's rooted in certainty. It means to eagerly, expectantly wait on the Lord. In the English, it can come across as like David is giving us a command, an imperative. Like, oh, Israel, you should hope in the Lord. The rendering Hebrew is, oh, Israel, you will hope in the Lord. It is a certainty. You will hope in the Lord. That his provision for you in every part of your life at all times from this time forth and forevermore is sure. It is certain. Not because of who you are and what you do, but because of who he is. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. He's good. One of the the, the passages that we often uh, uh, preach on and we read at Christmas time uh, is Isaiah chapter nine, uh, and it, I know we could probably many of us could probably recite it by heart, but let me just let me read a portion of it for you. The Lord, the Lord says, again, this is the Lord speaking. The Lord says, "For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord is speaking and saying, I have said that this will come to pass, and therefore I will accomplish this. It is a certainty. Here's the kicker, that the promise of Isaiah 9, the promise of a redeemer, the promise of Jesus, it came to a people that were prone to pride, who the Lord says were walking in darkness. They were walking in sin. What does that say to us? That even though we may waste so much of our lives pursuing the childish ways of sin, that the Lord does not waste it. Dorothy Sayers, the writer, she said, God wastes nothing, not even sin. The Lord that has struggled, or the soul that has struggled and come through is enriched by his experiences. And grace does not merely blot out the evil past, but in the most literal sense, makes it good. Here's the point. The hope of maturity is the certainty that God redeems all your life, past, present, and future, by the blood of Jesus and his resurrection and the ongoing work of the Spirit in you. And that is why we're supposed to sing. That's why we're supposed to sing this psalm. Uh, and not just sing together as we are making a journey, making a, a sojourn towards uh, the city of Jerusalem, but to New Jerusalem. That one day, someday, when the good work that the Lord began in us will be brought to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And until then, we remind each other, we encourage one another. As we get together here on Sundays, as we, we get together throughout the week, we remind each other that the Lord has changed the default setting of our heart from, from a state of pride, that he has done a good work in us. He has humbled us uh, to come close to him, to be dependent upon on him for the certain provision that he provides to us. We are not where we will be. Um, but one day we will get there because the Lord is faithful. He is working on you and working on me even this morning to do what we confessed a little bit earlier, uh, to teach us to hate what he hates and to love what he loves, that we might walk in his ways according to the commandments of Jesus Christ our Lord, to, to repent of our sins, to turn away from those darling sins that we cling on to with dear life sometimes, to repent from the sins that we maybe have long since forgotten, but we still participate in, that are out of sight and out of mind. To, to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love our neighbors as ourselves. To love our enemies and to love our cities. But folks, the Lord is faithful. And he will surely bring us to complete maturity in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the good work that you have done and that you are doing and you'll continue to do. Um, uh, Lord, we are needy people. Uh, we need uh, your good word. We need your good work. Uh, Lord, we thank you that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but that you accomplish all of your purposes.
Uh, we thank you that you redeem our, our life, not just the parts of our life that, um, that, are, that are hard for us, but you redeem all of life, uh, that you turn right side up, which is upside down, um, that you, um, you bring us fresh, cool water to drink when we are thirsty. Uh, Lord, you are the God of redemption, and we give you thanks and praise, and we look forward to that one day someday. Uh, when we will have no more tears, uh, where there will be no more uh, cries out to you for help uh, in our distress, but we will live um, as completely righteous people before you, uh, looking to our Savior Jesus, uh, who is our hope. We pray this all for his sake and our joy. Amen.